Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Hey, welcome back to Politico Tech. Today is Friday, December 15th. I'm your host, Stephen Overly. The big climate conference, COP28, has come to a close. And on yesterday's show, we talked about how the Biden administration was there making a pitch for carbon capture technology. Well, you can think of Brad Crabtree as the chief salesman. He's the assistant secretary for fossil energy and carbon management at the Energy Department, which is a position at the center of U.S. efforts to capture and bury carbon emissions from power plants, factories, and other heavy polluters. Crabtree attended the first week of COP28, and he's heard complaints from climate activists that carbon capture is a pipe dream and a distraction from the push to stop fossil fuels. But Crabtree couldn't see carbon capture more differently. In fact, he says achieving global climate goals will be impossible without it. On the show today, his case for capturing more carbon. You know, the conference is now coming to an end here. You know, the U.S., has been promoting there the adoption of some of these carbon capture technologies that your office deals with directly, um, you know, including through this, uh, what's been called the, the Carbon Management Challenge. What's the end goal of that challenge, particularly as it relates to, you know, working with other countries and, and seemingly sort of bringing them into this fold? Well, so there's a couple of pieces to it. Uh, one uh, is, if you think about the critical things that need to happen, the critical pathways to achieving net zero emissions by mid-century and meeting the climate goals of 2 degrees and 1.5 degrees Celsius that were established in Paris. You know, the science tells us, whether it's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change or analysis by the International Energy Agency and others, we simply cannot get to net zero emissions by mid-century if we do not deploy carbon management at scale economy-wide and globally, okay? Hmm. It really has to be all three of those things. It can't just be the United States or other industrialized countries. It really has to be global, and it can't just be one industry or the other, another industry. It really has to be across the economy. We really need a, a, a global partnership to have carbon management make its contribution to achieving net zero emissions that the science clearly s- indicates. And so... Towards that end, a goal of the Carbon Management Initiative and the countries that have joined is that across our collective efforts, that we will advance projects that cumulatively will achieve one gigaton or one billion tons of carbon capture and storage annually by the year 2030. So uh, at this point, less than a decade. Uh, and if you look at some of the modeling done by the, by the IEA on what it will take to achieve net zero and what portion does carbon management need to contribute, the IEA has suggested we need about a billion tons of CO2 emissions being captured and stored globally by 2030 if we're to be on track to meet that target. Is there a way to put that in layman's terms for me? How much carbon actually is that? I'm not sure how you put a billion tons of carbon in, into perspective, and it's a lot of CO2 emissions, but uh, right. the U.S. is about uh, four to five billion tons per year, just the United States alone. So that gives you some perspective relative to our emissions. Um, but maybe to think about where we're at today globally with carbon capture and storage, 
right now around the world, we're capturing and storing CO2 emissions from industry and from power generation, mostly industry, on the order of about 40 million tons per year. And uh, so you're, it's more than a tenfold increase, uh, substantially more than a tenfold increase in what we're doing today by 2030. And really, that's just a critical mass. Um, the science tells us we need to be capturing and storing both from industrial facilities and power plants on the one hand, and more and more in the future from ambient air itself with technologies like direct air capture, actually removing CO2 that's already in the atmosphere. We need to be doing all that at the scale of billions of tons by 2050, but we can't get there if we don't have that foundation of about a billion tons by 2030 so that we can scale up in the remaining 20 years. And how far along are we here in the U.S. on this? Well, so actually, this is one area where this is not boasting or hyperbole. The United States really is one of the world leaders in, in carbon capture and direct air capture technology. So the capture of the CO2 itself, as well as the transport and geologic storage of it, we've really uh, shown that that's possible at scale. Our first projects in the United States started in the 1970s. Today, we have 14 commercial-scale operating carbon capture projects across a number of industries. Now, it's not nearly enough from a climate standpoint, but it's a very, very important level of, of, of demonstration in terms of showing that the technology works and that we know how to capture the CO2, transport it to a place where it can be stored, and then inject and permanently and safely store that CO2. We have, we have been doing that on the order of millions of tons a year for many years. I think there's a misperception uh, sometimes in the media and certainly in the public that this is something that we don't know how to do. We actually know how to do this really well, and we've done it at very large scale. But we need to bring the cost down, and we need to expand that deployment to a level that will really make a difference from a climate standpoint. I mean, if we if we know how to do it, well, and, you know, there have been these 14 projects, you said, since the 70s, why don't we have more of them? Well, part of it is that, um, you know, I started off my career uh, in energy and climate policy working on wind energy, and I'm from North Dakota. And we only had our, we had our first commercial scale wind farm in the early 2000s in North Dakota, and projects started elsewhere in the United States earlier than that and in Europe. Uh, but it was only until we got a certain critical mass of projects did the cost come down. The difference is carbon capture existed back then as well, but we had a lot of federal and state policy supporting things like wind and solar decades ago. Um, and we, in, and this is also something that's misunderstood. There's a perception that there's been a lot of federal policy support, funding and incentives for carbon capture and storage. That's actually not true. The original tax credit uh, did not work. It did not have enough value and wasn't designed in a way to really incentivize investment in the technology. So the 45Q tax credit, which is the tax credit in the U.S. for carbon capture and storage, that was first expanded and reformed only in 2018. Hmm. And then it took uh, a couple of almost three years for the guidance to become available so that investors and project developers actually knew what would be the requirements around the tax credit. And now it just got expanded again uh, a year ago in the Inflation Reduction Act. So really, industry is only now gearing up with projects with this financial incentive available. 
And I would note that we have these 14, 13 or 14 commercial scale projects today, but already just, just under 200 projects have been announced by industry in response to the tax credit. The other area where we're providing support that we didn't in the past is we're providing significant levels uh, of funding through the infrastructure legislation, the bipartisan infrastructure law, right. to demonstrate carbon capture technologies and to support the development of the CO2 transport and storage infrastructure region by region. And again, there was a little, there was a few billion dollars in funding after the 2008 financial crisis in the stimulus legislation that passed, but it was only enough for a few projects. And then the funding essentially stopped and we went for a decade without additional federal dollars for research development and demonstration. The infrastructure bill changed all that. So, so now carbon capture and all the technologies and infrastructure associated with that has largely the same types of federal incentives and funding that other types of clean energy technologies have. Uh, and so that's a huge change. And that's why we're seeing all this interest and response in the private sector. And is that going to be enough incentive to achieve this skill that you were talking about earlier? Because I'll say, you know, I, I hear a lot of skeptics of this technology that it, it really is that effective. But then I also hear skeptics who say we can't scale this up enough to actually move the needle. What do you say to that? Well, it's interesting as a as a former before I was in government years ago as a former wind energy advocate, I heard the same criticisms made of wind energy, and it's now one of the most successful clean energy technologies that we have. Um, so, here's what I would say: the costs of carbon capture vary a lot depending on the industry. So, certain industries have. CO2 emissions that are quite concentrated. And so it costs a lot less to capture CO2 if it's in high concentrations. And I'll give some quick examples. The ethanol industry produced CO2 through the fermentation of corn and biomass. It basically is pure CO2 emissions. And all you really have to do is take that CO2, dehydrate it and compress it, and then it's ready to store geologically. That's the lowest cost carbon capture that we have. And that's that's affordable today. In fact, with the 45Q tax credit, in fact, in some places, it will be cheaper than renewable energy as a way of reducing CO2 emissions. Other industries, typically heavy industry, the concentration of the CO2 emissions is a lot less. So for example, cement, steel, chemicals, the flue gas coming off of these facilities um, has a lot of CO2, but there's also a lot of other emissions in that flue gas. And so you have to separate that CO2 from the rest of it. And so the costs are much higher. And so the 45Q tax credit will make some projects in those industries possible. But for many projects to move forward, they'll need additional support from the federal government. Just like in the early stages of renewables, in addition to the tax credit, the Department of Energy was providing grants to companies developing uh, the first utility scale solar projects, for example, it wasn't mm. just tax credits. It was a combination of tax credits and federal grants. We're going to need that for some of these uh, industries that are critical to addressing climate. Like I mentioned already, cement, steel, chemicals, uh, the refining industry. All these industries are important in terms of emissions reductions and carbon capture is an important technology. But we we'll have to do a lot to bring the cost down. We'll be right back.
The Biden administration is moving forward with a slew of new regulations that put products like semiconductors, electric vehicles, modern healthcare technology, and clean energy at risk. Chemistry is essential to our modern lives, creating products to help foster a more sustainable and competitive future. The Biden administration must change its course and work with manufacturers on science-based policies that protect American innovation. Learn more at chemistrycreates.org. I really do want to get your reaction to a quote, a recent quote from former White House climate advisor Gina McCarthy. And I'll, I'll, read, that, I'll read that to you because it's a sentiment that I've heard before, um, which is, we have clean energy technologies with more coming along every day to deliver the future we all want and need. She says, let's debunk the myth of carbon capture and sequestration. CCS is not a panacea or even a next step. It's just a way for fossil fuel companies to avoid facing the reality that the transition to clean energy is real, it's accelerating, and it's our future. So my question there is, you know, is the focus on carbon capture technology sort of a gift in some way to the fossil fuel industry? No. Um, first of all, no one is suggesting that carbon capture is the only solution. The hmm. climate math, the math that it takes to get CO2 emissions to net zero by mid-century is daunting, okay? Right. It is a very, it is humanity's greatest challenge is to achieve net zero emissions by mid-century. In order to meet that challenge, we need to be expanding the options for reducing emissions. And so carbon capture and storage, uh, carbon dioxide removal, taking CO2 from the atmosphere, these two strategies and the technologies associated with them is only one tool in the toolkit of which we need many to, to achieve that target. So if you look at what the scientific community has said about the role of carbon management, um, they're not suggesting that that's the only thing uh, we need to do. In fact, if you look at this COP, I think it highlights very much the appropriate role for carbon management, which is hmm. it's one of the essential pillars for keeping one point, the 1 1.5 degrees Celsius goal within reach. But the other things, other commitments that are being made that are part of that as well is a tripling of renewable energy. That commitment was made at the COP. Um, ending net deforestation globally is another one that we can't meet our goals if we continue to have uh, a net deforestation around the world. Um, see, we, we have to do more than just tackle CO2 emissions. There are other greenhouse gases. And fortunately, at this COP, the world finally mobilized around concrete targets and resources for, for reducing methane emissions. In fact, uh, uh, over 50 oil companies representing 40% or more of total global production committed to near zero methane emissions by 2030. And the United States and other governments and industry came together and have put over a billion dollars on the table for near-term methane emissions reduction. So that's another critical pillar. There are others. I could, I could list more. But the point is, is that carbon management is only one of those tracks. We have to do all of them, and we have to do all of them with urgency. And so I, we need to get beyond this either-or debate uh, but we need to do all of it, and we need to do it faster and more efficiently. I guess the question there, because uh, I, I hear this point from environmental advocates that they worry that it will become a distraction from the goal of reducing and ultimately eliminating dependence on fossil fuels. 
Is there any concern about that in your mind that there's sort of this sexy narrative of we'll out innovate and use technology to, to save us? No, I, I think that's actually, I understand the concern. I'm a lifelong environmental advocate and climate advocate. So I completely appreciate the concern, but there's two reasons why I think that concern is misplaced. First, we're not just talking about emissions from the oil and gas sector, okay? If you take heavy industry, there's both energy-related emissions. They come from fossil fuels, biomass in some cases, but mostly fossil fuels. But there's also what are called process emissions. In some of the most climate-critical sectors of the global economy, cement, steel, and basic chemicals, more than a majority of the emissions in those sectors aren't related to energy inputs. They're not related to fossil fuels at all. They're related to the chemistry of the industrial process themselves. When you manufacture Portland cement, which is cement after water is the, is the most widely distributed commodity on the planet. How do you make concrete? You make concrete with Portland cement and sand and other aggregates. And that Portland cement, when you calcine the limestone that's required to make the cement, you produce a large volume of CO2 through the process of heating that lime and preparing that lime in the cement manufacturing. And so without carbon capture, cement is about 7% of global CO2 emissions in the world today. Over half of that 7% of emissions comes from the process side of it where you can have completely renewable energy powering the fueling the cement kilns worldwide, and you'll still have over half the emissions from that industry. So you must have carbon capture. Uh, steel is the same way. Reducing iron ore to produce steel uh, actually has CO2 process emissions. They have to be managed. And so even if we eliminated fossil fuels in the global economy today, just theoretically, just the process emissions alone from these industries would keep us from achieving net zero and meeting our climate goals by mid-century. So point number one, carbon capture is essential in industry independent of fossil fuels. It's, it's not optional. It's essential. The second point I would make is that even as we ramp up alternatives to fossil fuels, which we're doing, and we're going to be accelerating that, we cannot wait to decarbonize the fossil energy that we're using today. If you look at the climate modeling, we have to do both. We have to bring down emissions from fossil fuel use today, even as we rapidly scale up the alternatives. And if we only work on scaling up the alternatives and maintain uh, our fossil fuel emissions without starting to decarbonize those processes, we will miss meeting our mid-century climate goals. So they both have to go together. Got it. Well, maybe we'll have to touch base next year uh, around the next COP to see how all of that has uh, played out. That would be great. I'd look forward to that. Thank you. Excellent. Well, thanks for joining us here on Politico Tech. You bet. Thank you. Take care. That's all for today's Politico Tech. For more tech news, subscribe to our newsletters, Digital Future Daily and Morning Tech. Music in today's episode comes from the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior producer is Annie Reese. Our editors are Steve Heuser, Daniela Cheslow, and Louisa Savage. I'm Stephen Overly. See you back here on Monday.